I love that song. I don't know what what tomorrow holds. Um, as much as we try to figure it out all the time, right? I spend half my day trying to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow and what's coming up. Um, it's a pointless pursuit. Uh, this morning we're going to continue, and we're going again, just like always. Uh, I say always, like it always happens. Um, just like last week, we're going to kind of get a little bit of a running start into the text this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter two, verses sixteen uh, through twenty-three. The intention is to finish out chapter 2. Um, if you're familiar, if you've kind of been reading ahead, which is, by the way, it's okay to do. If you read ahead a little bit, it's not cheating. Um, in fact, it'd be encouraged. Um, but we, we've been spending a few months here in the book of Colossians, and now we're going to be coming to the end of chapter 2. And then once we get into chapter 3, he's going to kind of shift the intent of what's going to be happening. If you're sitting there wondering, okay, I need something to do. Matt, tell me something to do. I need something that I can apply. I have to just get right in there I need a list. Give me something I can start working towards a little bit. We're going to start getting into that a little bit more in chapter 3. But he continues to build his case. He continues to affirm the truth of who Christ is in light of these false teachers. Again, the context that we're having here in the book of Colossians is Paul writing to a church who is going to be encountering and is currently encountering false teachings, false teachers, and they're needing to be built up once again in their faith. Uh, in verses 6 through 12, he's talking about being rooted in Christ, and he affirms the deity of Christ in some of these verses. Uh, but last week, in verses 10 through 15, we saw two things that are incredibly important, incredibly praiseworthy, and absolutely essential for us to remember. The first is that our salvation is complete. We have total, complete salvation in Christ Jesus. There's not salvation, and if you continue to work harder, you're going to get more saved. There is no such thing as more saved because you worked really hard at it. And I want that to be an encouragement to us, because so often we're left wondering, okay, I'm saved and I know I've come to salvation through Christ, but I want something more. Paul is making it clear, there is nothing more. You have been completely and totally saved. And then also we see in verse 14, there is complete and total forgiveness. There is no need to be uh, for sins to be re-forgiven all of the time to a point where Christ is then having to die on the cross once again as an atonement for each and every sin as it comes up. There's not a need for, God, I have sinned, so now Christ has to die again on the cross, and I am unsaved, and now I have to get re-saved and come back to him in salvation. One time for all. Christ has died once for all time. This is found in Hebrews chapter 10. And there is incredible uh, encouragement that should be found with this, that your salvation is total and complete, and that forgiveness is total and complete for those in Christ. We're not left wandering. It is found complete. And then in uh, verses 12 all the way down through 15, God has performed a circumcision of the heart for those who are in Christ. The old man is buried. We are a new creation. The old man has been buried, has been put to death, and the new man is raised to life. Verse 15, in the closing of our text from last week, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You remember, Satan thought he was winning a battle, a, a pointless battle. He thinks he's winning. The demons, they're rejoicing. They're excited. Jesus, the person who is the Son of God, is going to die. And this is where they think their great victory is going to take place. A public death of the one who claims to be the Son of God, who the demons know to be the Son of God. They think they're going to win because he's going to die. And this is where Christ triumphs openly over sin and death, over the demons, over Satan, over all things, where he completely conquered sin and death. So now we find ourselves here in these closing verses of Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 16 through 23. Start reading in verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for, for the richness and the truth of your word. And God, as we spend these next moments simply uh, seeing what it is that you have for us in Colossians chapter 2 and seeing uh, the truths that are in it and the, the warnings and the, the exhortation to return uh, once again to the truth and to be connected to, to the head of the body, which is Christ, I pray that we would uh, meditate upon these words, that we would allow the, the wisdom in your word to, to penetrate our hearts and our minds and that it would uh, create a, a change and that you would continue to promote uh, holiness and godliness within us as we seek after you. God, I thank you for, for this time this morning and pray that you would continue to, to bless our worship. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting right in verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Again, if we remember the context of it, the continued persecution of these people, and there's a lot of stress, a lot of uh, intimidation coming under these people, saying, hey, I know that you think Christ is enough for salvation. He's not. You have to have all these other things. You have to prescribe to all the tenets of the Sabbath. You have to eat this, but you can't eat this. You have to drink this, but you can't drink this. And you can't drink it if this person made it or if it's a little bit, right? There's all these other rules, and no one could ever keep up with them. There was intimidation, pressure being placed on these believers to add something to Christ. Again, if it sounds repetitive, it's because Paul has been repetitive all throughout this letter. We do not need to add anything to Christ. Once you do that, you lose Christ. It's a very simple, basic equation, right? You don't add anything to Christ because you're going to lose it. He's saying they're trying to judge you on what you eat, on what you drink, whether or not you attend the Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lo all of these other things. And he's saying do not let anyone judge you because of these things. Now again, many of us aren't probably... Uh, being judged for whether or not we attend the Feast of Tabernacles or, or Feast of Lights and all of these other things. But Paul is writing and he's making it very clear again, don't let anyone judge you, judging you based on your salvation, your spirituality, based on these things. Where you look upon a person, you'd see someone eating something, and you'd say, ha, that person eats this, they must not be a Christian, they must not be saved. Or a person who, who happened to maybe miss a service here and there, Oh, that person must not be a Christian because they missed a service on Sunday. Or they didn't go to, they're not at prayer meeting, so they must not actually be a Christian. Do we see how, how silly this would end up being? To judge the, the salvation, the spirituality of a person because 
well, they're not here this one time. And I saw them at the store, and they went, they shop at Lowe's, and they don't go to Home Depot, and therefore, not spiritual. Right? McDonald's instead of Burger King. Right? We can create all of these things. You, you Coke drinkers, I'm a Pepsi guy, okay? But I don't think you're less spiritual because you like Coke better. Right? So we see kind of how this plays out. They're simply looking upon externals, trying to judge an internal state, a position of spirituality based on an external. Logically, it doesn't even make sense. And he's, he's telling them, don't let anyone judge your spirituality based on these things. But remember, much like Galatians, these were people who were trying to place Jewish rituals and ceremony, laying it over top of Christ, trying to snuff out the sufficiency of Christ and elevating these to a position of most importance. Where, yeah, yeah, that, that Christ thing is good for salvation, but if you're not attending these feasts, if you're not doing all of these things, if you're not eating the right things or drinking the right things or doing all of this, then it's all, it's all canceled out. They're saying it's not enough to know Christ, but you also have to keep in Jewish law. Again, not just Jewish law. There was also heresies of paganism coming in. right? So keep in mind all of this that's going on. You have these things swirling around. right? It's kind of just a hodgepodge of different beliefs where you're throwing in, all right, Christ, boom, that's one. Then they're adding a layer of Jewish legalism, that's two. And then another one of paganism, another Greek philosophy and all of these things. What's left? They've, they've made this, this theology soup, essentially, to go together and saying there's no reason for these things. They believe that their spirituality is based on Christ plus the keeping of these rituals. And this is where we get the idea of legalism, right? We, we've, we've talked about it a lot. Whether you're looking at Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, look at any of the epistles, we fall quickly into an understanding of legalism, and it's not looked at favorably. Legalism could be defined as looking at your spirituality by your ability to keep man-made rules. Now, I want to make an important distinction because I think when, when churches and pastors, and I've probably been guilty of this at some point, is when you talk about legalism, it, it kind of sends up some red flags, and there's some people that are like, yeah, legalism, I hate that. And then there's some that go, well, I've been accused of being legalistic just because I think there's things that we're supposed to obey. Okay? There's a difference between legalism and obedience. Right? Legalism says that you are, you are placing man-made rules and authority over that which God has commanded. Obedience is absolutely necessary for a Christian. Again, you're, you're going to have a hard time winning an argument with me if you're saying God doesn't have anything that he wants us to obey. Right? None of us would ever agree, agree with that. There is something obedience. Obeying God's rules is obedience, not legalism. So what is it that we're placing the emphasis on? Because I think a lot of times, and I did this all the time when I was younger. Again, I'm not old, I get that. When I was younger. Okay? When I was a teenager, okay, and I was still a pretty good kid, I heard, well, rules, it's just a bunch of churches, there's all these rules I have to do. And then someone was able to tell me this idea of legalism, and I was like, wait, hold on. If I can just say any rule that I ever hear from the Bible or from the church is legalistic, then I don't have to listen to anything. And you can really get carried away with this of saying, well, I'm not supposed to obey any rules. I'm under grace. God doesn't have anything he expects from us in obedience. And you can really carry this away. So I want to, again, draw a distinction between legalism and obedience. Are, are we obeying what man has set up as rules, extra rules placed upon what God has said, or are we simply obeying what God has commanded of his people. Because there is going to be a difference. So again, please don't hear me say against legalism, so therefore God expects nothing of his people. That's not the case. 
He does. He absolutely does. He, he requires obedience. But legalism, again, defining spirituality by keeping of man-made rules. This was the idea that the Jewish people were coming in and they were placing restrictions upon those who were saved and saying, hey, Christ isn't enough. You have to be circumcised for salvation. Well, I believe in Christ. I believe in the gospel. I've received it. Circumcision of the heart. I don't need this physical circumcision done by human hands. So we continue with this. And again, Paul is very clear about these things. So he's informing them and he's telling them, and we can look at this on both sides. Let no man therefore judge you of these things, but also flip that back to do not then therefore judge others based upon these things. Right? So we're seeing that these extra restrictions being placed on, he's pushing up against them. Because look at, think about what he was saying in verses 10 through 15. If Christ has given you complete salvation, as he has, so since he has, and if Christ has given you complete forgiveness, and he has, as we already saw, if he has given you complete victory positionally over sin and death because you've been redeemed, and he has done so, if everything is complete in him, and it is, as Paul mentions, then don't let anyone come along and make a spiritual judgment upon you based on what you do or do not do ritualistically or ceremonially. Ask yourself, is, are you less of a Christian because you miss a Sunday morning service? Has that changed your position being found in Christ? If you missed one service, or if you missed a prayer meeting, right? So, so this is something that happens so frequently is because we look at the external and we, we can track it, right? It makes us feel good because we can keep track of these things, both when we look at others and when others look upon us. Christ has canceled the bondage of the law. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, makes it clear, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand fast and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You understand all this ceremony, all the rules, all the laws, all of these extra things that are past what God has asked for us to do in obedience, these extra things that we tend to place on ourselves and on others, or even just others have placed it upon you. This is a yoke of bondage. Christ has set you free. Don't then go back into bondage. Christ has not set you free from these things simply to put you into another prison. That's not the point of grace. That's not the point of salvation. That's not the point of any of this. And Paul, again, being very clear to refute these things. Why is it that this isn't so? One, because it's adding man-made restrictions over the rules of God. I think we can all agree that's not ideal. But the other thing is when we're trying to judge based on simply external circumstances, there's an issue with that pattern, and it's very simple. A person who is not a Christian can absolutely fulfill all of those things. A person who does not actually believe in Christ, who does not actually have a redeemed heart, a redeemed soul, can absolutely fulfill all, of the, all these parts of the ceremony, right? They can absolutely abstain from eating the right things. They, they can eat the right things, drink the right things, not eat the bad things. They can fulfill all of these things because externally they can look wonderful. What did, what did uh, the Pharisees, what were they accused of being? Whitewashed tombs, right? That wasn't a positive to say how wonderful they looked. Their, their, their true nature wasn't great. Yeah, they looked good on the outside. They followed all of these rules. They worked really hard, but inside they were dead. And this is so important. If it feels like I'm belaboring it, I absolutely am. Making it very 
clear that a person who is not a Christian can qualify in all of these areas. A person who doesn't actually know Christ, they can attend church every week. They can obey all the ceremonial laws. They can celebrate Passover. They can do all of these things. And a person can look upon that and go, wow, look at that. They do everything. But inside, they could still be dead. And this is what Paul is writing. Less emphasis on the external. Pay attention to the internal. Then we get to verse 17. And I love this. This is pretty much the point of the entire passage. I, I could spend weeks and weeks just on this one verse. and Don't test me. Verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Do we see that? He's talking about all of these things. So take that list there, eating and drinking, uh, holy days, new moon, Sabbath day, all of these things. Don't, don't place such an emphasis on this. Why? Because they're merely a shadow of the things that were to come. They're merely shadows. They were not actually the point. They were pointing to the point. They were not meant to be the result. A shadow anticipates the arrival of someone, right? We're familiar with shadows. Some of you maybe not as much familiar with shadows. I don't know. Uh, not like Peter Pan's shadow that does kind of its own thing, which is creepy, by the way. But Paul is writing to them, don't, don't focus upon these things. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't judge others on these things. Why? They're a shadow of things to come. The shadow is gone, but the reality is already here. Why then go back to a world of shadows? It makes absolutely no sense. The things in the Old Testament that were pointing forward to Christ, those were great and they were pointing forward to Christ, but now that Christ has come, the reality of who Christ is, that is the focus. And even then, you're not to worship a shadow, you're to worship Christ. How can the observance of Passover be a means of spiritual perfection? When our Passover, Christ, has been sacrificed already to perfect the saints. There's a thing, this idea that we should always celebrate Passover and go back because, well, in the early church they celebrated Passover and there's this Jewish feast and festival, all these other things. And Christ was our Passover. Celebrate Christ. Why so much back in the, into the, to the traditions of old? Celebrate Christ, the true Passover. What was the original Passover meant to point to? To Christ, right? Simple. And once, you, once we figure these things out and we're looking at it, you go, wow, everything was pointing to Christ from the very beginning? That's incredible. So why go back to those things? He continues to encourage them. Remember where your focus is. Those were shadows. Basically, get rid of them. The, the reality is here. Don't then go back to a shadow. Verse 10, we are complete in him. At no point were we ever complete in a shadow. We are made complete in Christ, not the shadow. An imperfect way of illustrating this, and I think I've done it before, but think about um, if I'm in the store with Benji. Benji and I go to City Market. If you've ever been to the store with Benji, which I'm not sure why all any of you really would have, um, maybe, right? But imagine he, we're walking around. If you've been to the store with him, he gets super excited to go to City Market. I have no idea why. He loves it. He's crazy. He runs around. It's obnoxious, right? I'm just trying to get a couple things. He wants to go touch everything, right? Especially the fruit, because he knows you can put it right back. It's gross, I get it. Right? But imagine, you get separated from the store. How many of you have ever gotten separated from your kids at the store for a minute? All, okay, some of you guys are lying to me, to each other. Or at least you have that moment of panic, right? Where is my kid? 
And the same thing happens when a kid gets lost, right? They finally realize they lost. It takes them a little bit after they're, because they're so distracted, right? They come back and they realize, I'm lost. Where's mom? Where's dad? And they are freaking out. The terror, the panic, all of these different things that are in them. They don't know what to do. Benjamin is lost in the store, and I'm walking around. I'm, we're, we're trying to find each other, and he's looking, but he sees my shadow somewhere. That I'm, about, I'm in the next aisle. I'm about to come around the corner. He's going to see my shadow, and he's going to reckon, hey, that looks like my dad. And there's anticipation, right? My dad's coming around the corner. I'm not going to be lost anymore. This is going to be incredible. How much happier is he going to be when I actually get around the corner and get to him? Do you think he's then going to say, oh, hey, Dad, I'd rather have your shadow and walk around with your shadow than actually having you? Go back around the corner. I want to be lost again just looking at shadows of things to come. It's ridiculous. If, if nothing else, if he says it, it's very hurtful to me as a father. Maddie would say it because she's funny. But think about this. Why then go back to the shadow? You have the reality. You already know the thing that the shadow was meant to convey. He sees my shadow. He sees, the, oh, dad's coming around the corner. He's going to be here. He's anticipating this. He's excited about it. And then I finally come around the corner. The joy that is going to take over him. And again, I am nothing compared to the reality of Christ no longer being a shadow and becoming the true dwell indwelling Son of God. I absolutely understand it. Again, imperfect. But why then would people go back to a shadow? We have the reality of Christ. Stop looking to everything else. And while this may not be the case for us in our culture of looking at food or drink, holy days, all of these things that we don't necessarily subscribe to, there's a whole list of things that legalistically we place as the, the true test of spirituality. Well, I, I saw a person at a football game, and I don't really, you, you know what kind of happens around football games, so they shouldn't be there. They're not a Christian. Or, well, they missed a Sunday service because they were going and doing something else. Well, they must not be a Christian. It's really easy to fall into it, and it's very, very clear. This is not the baseline for understanding the spirituality of a person. And Paul, again, continues to make that clear. Verse 18 and 19, let no man beguile, we see that word again, beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. He's saying, let no man rob or steal you or deceive you out of your reward. What is that reward? The reward is Christ. Do not let anyone deceive you, rob you, or steal you of that gift. Because that's what it is. It's they're stealing it from you. Again, do you remember back in the Good Shepherd discourse, someone going over the fence and coming and robbing? We have this understanding. He's saying, do not let anyone beguile you, deceive you. Again, this goes back to the fish hook. Let someone trick you out of your reward with all of these things. Humility, worshiping of angels. This voluntary humility and the worshiping of angels and all of these things, it quite simply bases everything on experience. The worshiping of angels is this idea of, called mysticism, right? Where it's all about your experiential knowledge and understanding that you have a deeper or a higher religious experience based on personal intuition. I've had this special, incredible experience, and I, Jesus came down, he, he put his arm around me, and we walked. We threw rocks together. Oh, sounds fun. This, this is very subjective. This is mysticism. And these false teachers were claiming to have a higher knowledge and a higher union with God. Now catch this. 
They were claiming that they were more superior, and this is incredible, because they were more humble than everyone. Think about this. Imagine this conversation, right? Hey, you seem pretty spiritual. How'd that happen? Well, I'm a lot more humble than all these other people. I mean, come on, you'd punch that person in the face, wouldn't you? Right? I am so, guys, you don't get it. I'm so humble. I wish you were as humble as I was. Right? These are the things that we're seeing going on here, that they were so humble, this voluntary humility, that they made themselves so humble that they were in such higher esteem, they had a higher knowledge and a higher union with God, and they had all these mystical experiences. This was in a couple centuries later, and this is what befell a lot of uh, different churches and was refuted a lot. And um, if you're familiar with church history, this, the rise of Gnosticism really came into play after this. The superior knowledge that was hidden and only reserved for a few select people. That, yeah, scripture, that, that's cool, but I have some better knowledge. God specifically revealed special things that you guys weren't really ready for. Right? You can, you can see how ridiculous this is. This false humility, which he makes very clear, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. That's where the source of it is. That's a person who, who's openly saying about how humble they are is exactly proving the, the incredible uh, the vanity that they have and their fleshly mind being puffed up. So up to now, Paul has confronted this idea of legalism and Christ plus all of these other man-made rules and then Christ plus mysticism. These were ones, and there was uh, very common at the time, to worshiping angels. Right, we've kind of talked about that a little bit in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author makes it very clear. Angels are not to be worshipped. They are ones who have been created. They are not creation. They are not creators. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, what happened when John tries to, he attempts to worship an angel, right? He sees an angel before him. He's bowing down. He's going to go and worship an angel. And what does the angel say? Does the angel sit there and go, hey, this is awesome. No, he's not happy. He says, get up. I am creature. In Revelation 19, verse 10, he says, and I fell, as, I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John writing about this experience. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. And I love this. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This angel who is going to be worshipped as John just completely is losing his mind here before an angel and says, oh my goodness, I need to worship this. The angel is disregarding it, rebuking him. Worship only God. Revelation 22, he does this again because John's got some bad habits, I guess. Verses 8 and 9. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which, keepeth, which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. So we're seeing in these two different, we're seeing two separate accounts here in Revelation 19 and 22 of John going to worship and praise an angel. And the angel says, Absolutely not. Worship only God. I'm just like you. He, he understood, the angels understand that they're creation. So we hear stories all the time, right? We want angels uh, of churches and people and false teachings. We want angels to come down. We want to sing praises to these angels, these incredible creatures that God has made and all of these things and that they're just like God and there's praise for angels. And what do we see biblically? An angel says, don't praise me. Don't worship me. Only worship God, which is a very big clue 
to anyone who says that they, they worship an angel or an angel that would want your worship, probably not an angel of the Lord. Incredible biblical pattern here. So, so we don't need to be confused. Well, there's an angel, and it came to me and it said that I need to worship him. Well, probably not an angel of the Lord. Because biblically, these angels, the ones who have been created by God, for God, to simply praise and worship him, they're not taking any for themselves. Only to glory in God. Verse 19, it makes it very clear about, about these false teachers and the false teaching, where they get the source of it, and also where they're not getting it from. Starting in verse 19, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the knowledge of God. Quite simply, they're not holding fast to the head. These false teachers that are teaching these things, putting these pressures on, intimidating you with these things, all these extra restrictions, they're not holding fast to Christ. They're not holding fast to the head of the church. So stay away. We see that contrast, right? They're not holding fast to the head. Then we see in verse 10, complete in Christ. And this is one of the most disheartening things that we see culturally. And again, I, we're not the only time period that has ever struggled with who is Christ? Is he enough? Um, oh, there's extra rules. I don't like that. We are not the only cultural generation that's ever had to struggle with these things. It's been going on since, I mean, Colossians, right? We're already seeing it this early, so we shouldn't think that we're so special to have our own heresies. Yeah, you can laugh at that. It's okay. The great heresy and the, one of the greatest efforts that Satan tries to do is to tell people that Christ is not enough, that you have to add on to it, that, that the equation is not good enough, that Christ equals salvation is wrong. You need Christ plus and fill in the blank with anything. And it's a very long list because literally anything will do to remove your understanding of the sufficiency of Christ. That you have to do all these things in order to be saved. But what does Peter tell us? That God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And Paul is writing even here in Colossians, we are complete in him. Stop trying to add. Stop doing it. There's no need. You're already complete. What's after 100%? Nothing, right? But when Satan can try to undermine who Christ is and say that he is not enough, people get left wandering around trying to find the next thing. This is why we have so often these different blends of religions, of Christianity mixed with this one. And we try to pull and we, we take from all of these other Eastern religions and you want to mix in uh, Buddhist elements with Christianity or, or this idea that Christianity and Islam, they're, they're the same idea. Let's just put them together. That's basically the same God. And it is so dangerous because anytime you add to Christ, you're taking him away. And this is so crucial because again, for, for a young person that's growing up in a current culture today, where some of you grew up and the Bible was allowed in your school, you could pray in your schools, you could do all of these different things, the Bible wasn't openly attacked, and that was an incredible time. Well, right now, that is not the case. Many of you are familiar with this. I'm not, making, I'm not going to do political points. If you want to talk politics, we'll do that later, because I love to. This just isn't the forum for it. But understand that they're... they're that kids are growing up, and, and even my generation, and maybe the one just above me was growing up and not able to have these things in school. You weren't. It was not necessarily a friendly environment. To where not only is God not, not taught within schools, but atheism would be taught in schools. Creationism and all this understanding of, of worship creation, this, this pantheistic idea of all of these things. 
Satan is very, very good at what he does because he gives people what they want, quite simply. Why does it sound good when someone comes along? And Again, some of you are familiar with this. You, you flip on the TV and for some reason the air is really late at night and you're struggling to stay asleep and, and you wake up and you're looking and you're watching the TV and you see a pastor coming on and he looks really good in this couple thousand dollar suit and he's telling you, hey, if you would just sow a seed into my ministry, God is going to cancel out all of your debt. He's going to heal you of whatever ailments you may have. Your life is going to become perfect the moment that that check clears to my account. Right? We're, we're familiar with this, and this is the general understanding that a lot of people have with Christianity, that that's what that is. Because why, and doesn't it sound good? Well, hey, if I, if I believe in God, he's going to give me all of these things. He's going to cancel out my debt. I'm not going to have financial problems. I'm not going to have health problems. Everything is going to be wonderful and perfect to me. And that sounds good, and it makes us feel good. Why? Because that's what our flesh wants. So there's no reason, it makes sense that it would be deceitful because it's what our flesh is wanting. And then we see missionaries and men like Hudson Taylor and these others that we, we're so familiar with and we know about that have absolutely nothing. But is their spirituality based on them having nothing? No, you can have a lot and still be spiritual. You can still love God and have a lot. I mean, look at, we look at Job, we look at all these other people biblically. It's not a sin to have something. But what is it that we're doing with these things? So in the closing minutes, we get verses 20 through 23. We're going to move quickly through this. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, and by the way, if, you've, if you're a Christian, then you, ha- you are dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, such as taste not, touch not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Here he's he's discussing another group of people known as the ascetics. They they followed extreme and rigid self-denial. This is the understanding that you had to be incredibly incredibly impoverished to have any spirituality. That a person who basically owned anything other than the clothes they had on, they couldn't be spiritual. Because God wants you incredibly, incredibly poor without anything. So they denied themselves all things. It was even so bad that the body was found to be evil. So crazy that even bathing was not okay because you may see your own body. So these people just wouldn't bathe. How many of you are quick to want to sign up with that or be sitting next to people? that have any, any belief like this, right? That marriage wasn't okay because you may see another person's body. and Again, even to the point of, of bathing and all these things that, that they were extremely rigid in their self-denial of anything, that the only way to be spiritual was to sell everything you have and to go and live in a monastery. This is, this is like the monastic life. I can have nothing. I just have to sit. Denying yourself all of these things. But in verses 21 and 22, it says all these things are going to perish. They're simply after the religion of men. And in 23, these things appear to be wise, but they indulge only the flesh. And this is where we're seeing the contrast. These things indulge only the flesh, the external, the exterior things that we can look at. He's writing and making it very, very clear. These things only indulge the flesh. You've already been made complete in Christ. No need to go back to the shadows. 
You've been drawn into the light. You've been drawn into Christ. You were found in Him. Don't go back hiding in the shadows again. Don't be bound. Don't be enslaved by the shadows again. Man-styled religion always panders to the flesh because it's what the flesh wants. And so then we're going to be getting here next week into chapter 3 and just going to read the first verse, up, first two verses of it. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. An incredible, incredible link from chapter 2 following into 3. Stop setting your eyes and your affections on these things. Look back to Christ. Set your eyes on things above, focusing on Him. Because as it says in verse 3, ye are, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Incredible promise. Incredible language here. So as we close chapter 2, there's a lot that's going on as he is not only refuting false teaching, but affirming those things which are true. And from here on out, he's going to give stuff that's a lot easier for application. Things, things as far as obedience and encouragement and exhortations with this. And I love that Paul is so clear and so uh, unwavering in his contrast of the things of man and the things of God. Continue to seek after God. Don't go back to the shadows. We've already been made complete in him. Continue to pursue him and his holiness. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for for the truth of your word and that it that it grows us, that it strengthens us and as we See all that your word has for us, and even just in these few verses of simply not going back into the shadows, not, not focusing on the external and judging others or allowing ourselves to be judged by others because of what we, what we eat or drink and all of these things that are external as we know that, that even those apart from you are able to fulfill these things. God, I pray that you would continue to to grow our affections for you, that we would set our eyes upon you, that we would continue to, to grow in our, our desire to obey what it is that you've commanded us. God, I thank you that, that you, you've offered redemption to your people, that you've redeemed the hearts and the souls of man that are, that are fallen by your grace. Father, it's, it's incredible that that once we understand our own sinfulness in light of you and your perfection and your holiness, that you've even offered any bit of love, any bit of grace, any bit of redemption to us, but you did. Thank you that, that you have quickened those who are dead in our sin, that you've, that you've made us alive in you and that we've been, we've been made a new creation and one that seeks to honor and glorify you and to, to do nothing else. God, thank you for this time of, of resting in you, of seeing your word, and, and line after line, and page after page in your word, continuing to see the, the prevailing theme of simply looking upon you and giving you all the glory and taking uh, glory in nothing else except for you and, and the cross. Father, this morning I pray that we would grow in the way that we we behold your greatness and your, your holiness and your just your beauty. God, I pray that as we as we go from here today that we would 
have an honest evaluation of ourselves that we would look and see if if there is anything in us that that seeks to look at the external that seems to place restrictions upon you and you've made it clear in your word that you you alone are enough that Christ is enough for salvation if Christ is enough for salvation and he is then why would we seek to add anything else why would we ever go back to the shadows when we've already tasted the reality of you God, I pray that you continue to to show yourself to us and continue to grow us through the nourishment of your word. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.